It's the Stazapod, your weekly update. How is everybody doing? Well, I hope. Before we hop into your questions, a little bit of a brief update. We had a very quick flash sale that went really well. This is coming off the heels of our enormous send sale and then actually breaking our sales records for Star Marshall Crux and Lady Wraith and that whole Summer Frankenslice collection. Uh, so we're on a good trajectory right now, and I'm super excited about that. Uh, this coming Tuesday, we're going to have a proper sale, and we're going to see two characters we haven't seen in a while, Saima and Radic. You know, uh, it's been quite some time since we had a full new painted Radic style. I think you guys are going to dig this one. And uh, there'll be a nice short story to go along with that. Regarding Action Figure of the Month Club for August, um, it is still a bit of Schrodinger's cat. There are two potential options here, one of them being a figure that has yet to leave China, and one of them being a figure that's already here, ready to go. Uh, This will be something you receive towards the end of the month, And I'm just waiting. I think within the next couple days, maybe by the time this is published, I will know which of those two figures is going in the crate. And uh, whatever the case may be, you'll get one of them this month and the other one in September. So uh, September should be shipping out pretty early in the month compared to the past couple months for us where we were waiting on things. So uh, hang in there. I think you're really going to like either solution. And this could, uh, I don't want to say too much. I don't want to spoil it. Just, you'll be happy. First up is a question from Gordon McKinnon Hall. This harkens back to the Patreon-exclusive podcast that featured guest stars Matt Dowdy and Nicholas Fung. Uh, that is only available to patrons, patreon.com slash Stasio. You can go get access to that. It's a very, very funny conversation involving a 20-hour old burrito. Uh, And that brings us to this question. If you received a gift of food delivered by a friend getting off a 20-hour plane ride, what food would it be? Um, I would have to go with something that wouldn't spoil on a 20-hour flight. So uh, let's just say some beef jerky. That seems like the, the most sound and safe type of food you could have or possibly let let's go old school let me get a little bit of pemmican brent lawson has a good question here when will you open orders for action figure of the month 2022 full year enrollment um this is something i i haven't quite addressed yet and part of the reason is i haven't sat down and um decided for myself how that's going to work now The issue with offering a full year subscription all up front is that I can't necessarily speak for the troubles that may arise throughout the year with China and how that could disrupt the fulfillment schedule. So what I'm attempting to do this month is sort of place these big year-end orders that give me a ton of runway for next year. And I don't know that that gives me 12 months worth of figures, but it should give me four, if not six months already in the bank. And once I know that that's going to happen, I think with a little more certainty, I can start considering doing the full year enrollment. If we're stepping back a second, 
I also sort of have to decide for myself I want to do Action Figure of the Month Club for next year as well, uh, which, you know, I think is likely a yes. I see no reason to to sort of disrupt this very fun uh, project that we have going on. Um, so I need a little bit more time. I, I don't think I will offer full year enrollment in December like we did last year, which got you a sort of bonus 13th figure. I think I would probably just for sort of uh, bookkeeping sake do enrollment in January and make it, you know, January to December is the sort of full year. Um, it, it was kind of hard to keep track of who had signed up in December, who had signed up on January. There were a couple people who signed up on the cusp of both months. And, um, you know, that sort of put a, a wrench in my planning. So I, I think likely I will just uh, keep it to 12 months and only allow enrollment throughout January of next year. But again, um, I got to make those decisions once I have 2021 lockdown. And I have a good idea of how the first half or first two halves of 2022 look for the club. In the Tomimoto Zone, Lance wants to know, what is my worst food poisoning story, a la the 20-hour burrito? Um, I've had food poisoning two times in my life, and both times I thought I was going to die. Just truly, food poisoning is, is one of the worst feelings. I mean, obviously, there's much worse feelings out there. Um, you could be terminally ill. But uh, for the experiences I've had, food poisoning is probably one of the worst. The first time I had it, I must have been about 20 years old in one of my very first apartments. I, I might have been slightly older. I think I was like 22. And my sister had made a lasagna. I was, I was roommates with my sister at the time. And uh, the lasagna just sort of sat out on the stove overnight, and I didn't think anything of it, and I ate a ton of it the next day. And sure enough, within about 12 hours, I was violently ill. And uh, I, I still can sort of like feel the retching from it. Really tremendously, tremendously bad, bad, bad time. The second more recent time that I got food poisoning, uh, it was on the eve before I was going away on a little trip, had a hotel booked, had uh, this whole this whole evening planned, really fantastic one. And uh, sure enough, got food poisoning, not quite sure where I got it from, possibly some bad spinach from a local uh, grocery store. And uh, that was, who? that one was a world of hurt. I think because it was more recently, I can sort of vividly remember it, but um, I just basically uh, laid on the the tile flooring of the bathroom for probably six or seven hours and didn't move. Um, truly, you know, humbling, brutal experiences. I hope all of you uh, can avoid food poisoning because it, it is quite terrible. I would say also, uh, don't leave food sitting out. You know, refrigerate it. And if anything seems a little suspect, it's not worth the risk. Not not by any stretch of the imagination. Just toss it, uh, because it is. You know, you will you will be deeply affected. 
And now a very nice, thoughtful question from Melissa Saylor. I feel like the Night of the Slice community is very positive, unlike things I see in other independent toy communities. How did you cultivate that, Jesse? Or why do you think that is? This is a, a truly fantastic question. Probably should have started the episode with this one, because there's a lot to sort of unpack and dig into. And I don't think I have all the answers, but I, I, I have been thinking about this, because I do think it's true. I do think, like, this isn't a overwhelmingly positive community and has maintained that for six years and hopefully maintains it for many more to come. Um, I would say the biggest factor working in our favor is that comparatively we are a very small fan group. Now I'm comparing it to like big things like uh, I, like Mezco or Super 7 or uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, like all these huge brands, they have hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and inevitably, when you get to that size, uh, there's going to be trolls just just by virtue of percentage. Being a sort of smaller group, just by you know, just makes it easier to sort of police and uh, take care of any problems, any spam posts, any trolls, things like that. Uh, so. With the size we are, largely myself and Nikki can be the main policing body, and then we have help from moderators and, you know, people set up on Discord or uh, in the Facebook group. You know, everybody does really good work, and, uh, you know, a big thank you to all of the people that uh, play those roles for us on our social media channels. The other factor is that Nikki and I both worked at and for Frederator Studios, who did a ton of content and managed huge, huge fan bases and pages and YouTube uh, comments. And and uh, having been down in the trenches, Nikki more than I, of course, because I was a sort of contractor, not a employee, uh, we learned the best practices. And really, Fred Seibert authored a lot of the best practices for not just YouTube, but social media in general. I think there's an application there for all the stuff in his handbook. And one of their golden rules was don't feed the trolls. So if somebody is making antagonistic comments, if somebody's saying something racist or puerile, you just quietly take them out back and execute them. You give them the boot, you kick them out, and you don't make a big deal of it. You don't exchange blows. You know, you don't go comment to comment. You just sort of take them out of the equation. And We've had remarkably few instances where somebody had to be taken out of the equation, but when that has come up, uh, you do so pretty ruthlessly and very expeditiously. You just simply, you know, uh, you don't allow these things to fester. That's not to say that there isn't a sort of path to redemption for, redemption for people that, you know, might have been timed out or, or booted out, but uh, generally, you know, this is a magnanimous dictatorship. This is not sort of a, uh, you know, a public hall where everybody can air their grievances and, um, you know, cast dispersions and things like that. So I think, you know, to better crystallize that, because Nikki and myself have worked for other people on much bigger brands and done aspects of community management and outreach, uh, we already had a, a sort of muscle memory for how to act and how to interact within cultivated fan bases online. I think that that's something that is absolutely missing from 
most other independent toy companies just by virtue of, you know, it's a very specific skill set that you learn working for other people. Uh, and, you know, it, it is not something that's innate or people just have a natural ability to. It's a skill you sort of have to learn. And the fact that Nikki and I learned that elsewhere on bigger projects means that it is, you know, uh, second nature to us when it comes to Knights of the Slice. Another sort of thing that I, I'm just kind of uh, discovering this now as I'm talking, these, these thoughts are kind of popping up. Uh, so this might sound a little discombobulated, and I don't entirely have these thoughts ironed out and presentable, but I think largely because there are figureheads within Knights of the Slice, um, the attention goes to them. And I'm, I mean largely myself and Nikki, right? You guys know who we are. You have a pretty good summary of how we act in real life and what type of people we are and how we treat people. I think you've seen it many times over and over again. Obviously, Nikki has a, a big heart and is uh, super friendly and, you know, just an absolutely one of the sweetest guys you can meet. Uh, I'm a little bit more, uh, you know, temperamental, I admit, but ultimately, I think we've demonstrated we want to get people what they want. Uh, you know, we like making people's day and making people happy. And I think that that uh, is apparent. And you don't just know us as the text in a post, you know, attached to the photo of our product. You know us as living human beings. Now, obviously, there's a lot of distortion there because you just see us on social media. You're not necessarily interacting with us on a daily basis. But it is a relatively genuine and earnest facsimile of, you know, the type of people we are. And I think that makes it harder for people to uh, invent, um, you know, a, a sort of take on us that's evil or uh, conspiratorial or out to get them, if that makes any sense. I think when there are not faces or personalities attached to a brand, you can imagine whatever you want. And when it comes to the internet, people typically imagine, uh, you know, the worst. And, and that's not necessarily a bad instinct. But I think that, you know, a customer of Knights of the Slice probably gets to see all the blood, sweat, and tears that go into managing a toy line. And they get to see the setbacks and they get pretty honest explanations for why things get fucked up sometimes and why paint decos don't always look good and why a product might have two left hands. And uh, I don't try to hide any of that stuff. I, I make it part of the experience. And typically I try to make it right if, if something's wrong. So in a weird way, you know, uh, when you go to our Facebook fan club page, let's say, uh, the voice that you hear loudest is usually myself or Nikki's. It's not, there's not a void there. So, you know, more uh, louder members of the community or people who have, uh, you know, sort of antagonistic voices, they don't really have a place there because people aren't going to listen to that. If you go to a place like 4chan where there is no authority, there is no sort of leader, uh, it's just everybody sort of talking all at once, 
the most negative, the most divisive voices are going to gather the most attention. And I think that's true not just for 4chan, using that as an example. I think that's true on most social media. You know, whoever can be the lightning rod for controversy and piss the most people off or get downvoted the most or upvoted the most, those are going to be the people that sort of monopolize the bandwidth for people. In our case, because Nikki and I are human beings and we are the face of these brands, uh, I think that we monopolize the bandwidth, for better or for worse, and there's a little less oxygen to give to people who might have a sort of trollish, trollish persuasion to them. The final point I want to make as to why this is relatively pristine and preserved in a, you know, an apocalyptic wasteland of social media and fan followings. Um, I, I think at the core of this project is the creative spirit, right? Is the ability to create, to tell stories, to create characters, to write little, uh, you know, comics. And I think that the vast majority of our customers also have that creative spirit. Now, maybe it's not fully actualized. Maybe they're just in the early stages of making zines or drawing comics, or maybe they're fully established, you know, legit artists in their own right. But there is a inclination for the artistic and an appreciation of the creative process. And part of that is sort of vulnerability, right? Putting yourself out there, sharing stuff that may not be ready or very good, but getting feedback. And I think that when there is a creative element to a community versus just a consumer uh, instinct, you know, just just buying this, just flipping this, just trading this, that's it. I think when you can make something based on mutual creativity, um, it, it sort of leans towards being a more positive experience with a lot more respect because it, it feels good. It's reciprocal, right? Uh, you know, our good friend Gordon does these wonderful zines. He posts them. He posts his artwork. And he gets feedback, and largely it's positive feedback because the people commenting are also working on a zine or a little resin figurine or a header card or whatever the case may be. So we have a sort of currency of creativity, and I think that that, maybe in a very esoteric way, kind of like tempers us to be... I don't know, a little bit more well-behaved, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Uh, because we all are sort of putting ourselves out there, you know, for uh, public scrutiny with our artwork and with our projects. And uh, I think that that does temper. I I'm just realizing there's probably one more point, and that is um, largely Knights of the Slice collectors are older people. You know, there's not a ton of children or teenagers that sort of collect this line. Um, I would say our biggest demographic is probably 25 to 45. And because of that, we don't really have to waste time all day and sort of uh, antagonize people online. We Maybe we all did that in our early ages of the internet, but we've all sort of grown and matured. And, and largely, like, 
we're just here because it's an escape from work or it's something we genuinely love or you know we we need a little thrill in the day we want to see what's new what's what's the next release and having something that has such a positive vibe makes it precious and makes it something you want to respect and and with age uh you don't need to sort of be an antagonistic force because you're relatively stable or at least more stable than you were in your teenage years at least you know you you have stuff that's worth treating preciously and uh you know i think that largely age and and demographic have a lot to do with you know um how chill things are so that was a very sort of long-winded way of answering this and might have gone off on a tangent or two but i hope that makes sense i i think it's a really fantastic question and and more importantly I hope we can maintain what we have going on for as long as possible. There may come a day where, you know, I, I don't know, there's just so many people that it, it can't be policed in a meaningful way. Um, oh, God. Okay, one final thing. Very, very final, final thing. This may sound counterintuitive, but having a paywall with Patreon absolutely makes for a better community experience. And this may sound bourgeoisie, but this is 100% true. I've only had one instance on Patreon of somebody who had to get the boot and be kicked out. And I think that that person was actually not in a good place in their life. I don't think it had anything to do with Knights of the Slice. I think it was uh, outside sort of, uh, you know, influences that were causing them to act out. But the reality is the the lowest cost to interact on the Patreon behind this paywall is $5 a month. And that is not an insignificant ask. I recognize that. Um, because people have to sort of offer up at least $5 to be a part of this other side in Knights of the Slice, this other side of the community, people are less inclined to piss all over the place. You know, it's it's not... A rental car this is something that they own that they buy into that they're a part of um, so I do think that you can preserve at least a piece of your online community if there is some level of a paywall involved and now that comes with its own challenges it really puts the impetus on the creator to make sure that paywall is worth it for people I think that the value proposition with this patreon and Knights of the slice is pretty high. It's a great return for the money that people put into it, as far as I'm concerned. So I do think also, you know, honestly, the the ability to charge even a nominal amount monthly for access to a private community definitely weeds out a lot of the rabble and a lot of the people that um, would otherwise sort of be an antagonistic or trolling force uh, in this community. The large majority of people that have gotten booted or banned or blocked for spam or shit posting or things like that, those have all been on the Facebook group, which I think is a public group, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, like I said, there's only been one instance on Patreon where somebody sort of acted out in such a way they were completely undesirable to the overall vibe of everything. Uh, versus, I mean, I can remember at least 20 instances where you know, people have been posting about a sunglasses sale 
on Facebook or, you know, use slurs, uh, just, you know, all the garden variety stuff that people online do, that's happened in either our YouTube comments or on Facebook where there is sort of no fee uh, barring the entry to those things. So, you know, something, something else to consider. But great question. I've gone on long enough here. Next question from Mike Johnson. Is Alexander the Emperor of Mankind from Warhammer 40,000? Uh, <laughs> I absolutely love this question. If you don't know the character of the Emperor from Warhammer 40,000, there are some really excellent Warhammer lore videos out there on YouTube. There's tons of different content creators making them. Uh, it is a, a sort of fascinating world to dive into. Uh, full disclosure, I'm not a Warhammer player. I have played the game all of one time. Uh, I do have a ton of Warhammer stuff. I've always been a lifelong fan of White Dwarf. And, um, you know, it is a, a really intimidating but really illustrious sort of world to escape into. So I'm a big Warhammer fan. Um, I think if there is any character who could have the characteristics of the Emperor from Warhammer 40,000, it would definitely be Alexander, right? More than any other character we've met so far, he does sort of have the right DNA to be able to lead not just a country, but a globe and then a sort of universe or galaxy. So um, there's no intentional reference to the Emperor in Warhammer, but I, I, you know, he is definitely cut from the same archetype. Uh, and I look forward to more of Alexander's sort of exploits coming up soon. Daniel Hartzler, is Skull Grimson's gang an offshoot of the Starving Army, or are hunger-themed bandits, bandits just the norm in the world of Knights of the Slice? Uh, in my mind, there's no relationship there, but it, it is indicative of the state of affairs in Knights of the Slice, uh, which is that food is a scarcity. Resources are very scarce, and so you see these militias coalescing around the idea of simply feeding their people. And uh, unfortunately, I do think that this, is, this portends what may be in our future. I think the more likely situation is going to be water bandits than food bandits for the immediate future. I don't know if you've uh, seen the news recently about the Colorado River and it dropping to record lows and the rationing of water starting to affect the surrounding states while the water still flows to all of the corporate entities. Uh, but that is a asymmetry that is going to meet a cataclysmic point at some juncture, right? Those are two opposing forces that cannot be unreconciled, right? That will have to reach a break point. You cannot have... Uh, masses of people and masses of farmers cut off from water or rationing water while mega wealthy corporations are still allowed uh, well beyond the ration. That, uh, that cannot pass, you know. There, there's been many instances in history where similar sort of uh, situations have happened. I mean, you can read Grapes of Wrath. That's a really excellent encapsulation of this 
or look at the Holy Roman Empire, which went on to sack Rome. Uh, spoiler alert, they were neither holy nor an empire nor Roman, as John Green likes to point out. But really fascinating story there, too. Um, so uh, these silly little stories about Skull Grimson's gang and the starving army, these are actually based in some very real politics of this era and what I sort of see coming around the bend. I hope I'm wrong, by the way. Charlie Pope, what's the possibility of seeing more classic knights? I love all these new figures, but the classics are still my favorite. Uh, I think, you know, generally we'll we'll keep uh, rocking and rolling with the classic knights. I got a couple styles in mind. I got a couple orders, or I should say designs being finalized. Uh, you know, they, they will be a regular function of the store. Um, you know, for the foreseeable future. Jeremy Price, is it too early to ask uh, when the next campaign fundraiser will take place? No pressure, as I know you said they are stressful, but I'm curious as they are fun to watch slash participate in. Um, so fundraisers and pre-orders and things like that, they, they are becoming a necess- uh, n- <laughs> necessary part of the business. Um, as the supply chain gets more and more rocky, it is harder for me to sort of uh, sort of fund figures in secret because all the risk is on me. I have to put all that cash up front and then sort of unveil it at some point in the future. I know not when. Having a pre-order or fundraiser window uh, definitely helps me gauge interest so I can plan accordingly. And I know how much I need to sort of fulfill at least the initial demand for a figure. And, you know, as much as I have fought against being a pre-order company, uh, they are becoming sort of the price of doing business in this modern era. And, you know, it it is unfortunately something I, I have had to incorporate into the business more and more. Now, that being said, I try not to have too many pre-orders or fundraisers going on at the same time. I don't like having a lot of unfulfilled orders that need to be taken care of. Those things sort of float in my head and they're not, I'm not free of them until I've shipped every last piece out. In an ideal world, I would not do another fundraiser until I've fulfilled Diver. Well, until I've fulfilled Chromega and fulfilled Diver. But that's probably not going to happen. Without giving too much away, um, Knights of the Slice is at a point in its lifespan where I need to do a moonshot. I need to take a swing at something so ambitious uh, it could potentially ruin the entire business or it could be the thing that propels us into the next level of our existence. The, the thing that really opens up Knights of the Slice to a bigger audience and transforms the business from something that breaks even to something that shows a return for me. As I've talked about previously, every dollar I make on Knights of the Slice just goes back into the toys. And it has been that way for uh, coming up on seven years in, in the near future. And that's a, a very powerful way 
to have complete freedom and to get your designs done the way you want to. But it leaves me exposed because uh, it leaves me with not very much in savings and it leaves me without a paycheck. And so far, I've managed to skate by and make it work. And it's been a pretty phenomenal thing. Now, if I have a catastrophic medical event or, you know, a car crash or a mudslide or whatever that takes me out of the equation, um, that's pretty much it, right? Like, there's no cushion there. There's no safety net. And, uh, you know, the future would be very murky and uncertain. So, if I can channel my creative energy and I can launch a big project and it can be successful, that may change that factor in my life. That may sort of take the pressure off of maxing out credit cards and paying them down and, you know, all the things that go along with a very cash-intensive business like toy making. And I do know what this big ambitious project is. And I do know who the collaborators are for this project. And I do actually think this might be a Kickstarter not a private crowdfunding thing, because the idea is that good. But I don't have all the final details yet. I know what this thing is. I know who I want to have work on it. I even have some of the art done. Uh, but before I have all my ducks in a row, it would be precipitous to speak about this. Uh, just know that there is a very, very big thing I'm trying to accomplish, a, a ambitious project that is Knights of the Slice adjacent that could be, you know, bubbling to the surface sometime in the near future. And more than any other thing previously, this will be our rallying cry. This is going to be the thing that 100% we wave the banner very loudly for and get behind. Uh, the private crowdfundings we've done have been really miraculous and they've all been successful, but they have all been relatively small and controlled. And they have all been for characters that maybe did not have a universal appeal. Even if we felt they might have, uh, at the end of the day, none of these things shot through the stratosphere, and that's okay. Largely that's by design with the campaign and the stretch goals and things like that. But what's been always elusive is that bigger audience, that, that breakthrough thing that brings a deluge of people that have never even heard of me or Nikki or Knights of the Slice or Toy Pizza and instantly hooks them. And I think I have that thing now. And it will be very interesting to see if we can roll this out and when we roll it out and if we do do a Kickstarter and everything that goes along with that. There is, uh, you know, I feel like I have a plutonium isotope here. I have, you know, the atom bomb. And when it gets unveiled, it, it will, you know, have the same effect. It, it's going to be something spectacular. So I would say, to get back to the question, in a normal timeline, there would not be another campaign or a crowdfunder until Diver is fulfilled or at least, you know, at the end zone and, and almost in your hand. Um, there's another timeline where this ambitious project sort of gets completed and launches before anything else 
So, I, I know this is all very nebulous. I'm purposefully obscuring what this is. But, um, you know, the answer to this question may change dramatically within the next couple months. Gavin Raider asks, do you have any more plans to use Johnny Phantasm molded parts? I'd really love to see a mofo in a three-piece suit. Um, largely, Johnny Phantasm is sort of Johnny Phantasm, and I, I don't necessarily want to use those specific parts in that combination, but I do have access to those parts. Um, you have seen a little bit of them roll out, like we have the sort of legs utilized for Alexander's guards, um, so I think that's probably where the majority of that part reuse will be. Uh, the head on Johnny Phantasm sits very high, as was designed by that group, and it doesn't really work that well with Knights of the Slice core figures. So, um, you know, the usefulness of that torso piece in particular is pretty sparse, uh, considering all of the other combinations of Knights of the Slice and, and their heads and, and the fits of them. So I don't know that there is a sort of overall figure that's going to reutilize all those pieces. Uh, I think it's going to be more what we've seen previously with Frankenslices, if that makes sense. And now to announce the winners from our previous live stream giveaway, we were giving away one of each of the new style of figure being released by our good friend, Natalie Koromoto. Uh, I do not know some of these screen names. So if this is you and you're listening and you've won, please drop me an email, jesse at eerietheoryentertainment.com and uh, claim your prize. You must be 18 years old to uh, win this prize. Just a, a full disclaimer there. Winner number one is Wireless Aeon. Winner number two is Garlic Fish Ghost 9. And winner number three is Pilgrim Pancakes. I'm assuming those are first and last names, Christian names, and, um, you know, those are actually real people, not screen names. But if I'm wrong, please drop me a note, and uh, let's get connected. And again, you must be 18 years or older in order to claim this prize. We're going back to one last question on Patreon before we hop into some Facebook questions. Philip Barrara, will there be more fantasy characters in Knights of the Slice? I can see tabletop players using this modular toy line as a means to customize and realize their original characters in the 3D plane. So the idea of the intersection between tabletop gaming and action figure collectors is an interesting one. And it's a sort of intersection that many people have tried to conquer. Because it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like a, a definitive affinity circle. And if the right application was done, it stands to reason you would have a lot of success, right? These are both uh, fan groups very similar to each other, fan groups that spend a lot of money on their intended hobby. And uh, I, I, recently, I know this is kind of a diatribe based on Philip's question, but I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, I've been going back to this really amazing toy line called Shatterrun, based on the role-playing game, that was put out by Resaurus prior to those guys splitting off and becoming Plan B toys. And 
when these came out, which I'm guessing is probably 97, 98, um, there was not a lot of original creations on the market. There were not a lot of articulated figures. Uh, there were not a lot of high paint details. I mean, McFarlane was there and he was doing his thing, but um, even then he was he was veering more into the statuesque uh, interpretations of characters. So this line came out, and while it's not essentially an original character because uh, it is based on a role-playing game, they were unlike any other characters out there. You had orcs, you had, uh, you know, wizards, you had hackers, street samurais, and I really loved this line, and it was pretty fantastic. And uh, I've been diving back in and slowly uh, picking up some of the older figures. Shout out to Lance and Jordan, who have hooked me up with three of them. Really appreciate that. And, um, you know, there was a lot of potential here because Wizards, uh, WizKids was really on the scene in a big way. And these were meant to bridge that gap between six-inch action figure collectors and game strategist-type people. And it really fell flat. I mean, there were two series of figures, but it did not sort of ignite. It did not catch fire and uh, become this big thing. And I think that, you know, it, it's a bridge too far. I do think that these two groups are very separate. You know, I think people would either play a tabletop game or play with action figures not necessarily both of them. At least that's what sort of history has shown us since, you know, 1998. I, I, I know that, uh, you know, Hasbro integrated, I think they called it Battle Dice or something, and they came up with a gaming component for their three and three quarter inch figures. There's always been some level of experimentation with this, and I just don't see any of those experiments ever gaining traction or, or meaning anything. To the more specific character, will there be, uh, sorry, to the more specific question, will there be more fantasy characters? Um, it is something I would like to do. I do think that I've struggled with um, adding something new to the fantasy trope. It, it's an extremely arduous genre to be in and not fall into the same patterns of every other story that's been written in it, right? The impulse is always to have dungeons, have a small team of balanced classes. You know, you have a big, strong character. You have a sort of stealthy character. Um, you know, th these have been repeated over and over again. And I think I've struggled as a storyteller to, to gain footing in a meaningful way in the fantasy setting. Um, so this is also sort of something that my brain has been absorbed with lately, trying to figure out. I, I would like to do more... I don't really want to step into that world until I have something new to say, and I feel like I have an interesting interpretation of the kind of tropes that, you know, these stories and this genre are infused with. Now, moving along to our Facebook questions, we got Gabriel Tovar here. Where have you been getting the recent weapons that have been included with some of the recent figures, like the Cat Claw and Alexander Guardsman? They're really cool. The plastic they're made of feels sturdy and tough. And then our good friend Roy points out that these are, in fact, Spirotoys.com, uh, some of their weapon sets. And they were kind enough to let me purchase uh, in bulk quite a few sets. And uh, I think that these really help kind of add a, a little extra spice to uh, some of the figures I've put out. So I'm super psyched, and, and thanks to Spiro Toys for being so generous. 
Next question, Adam Kenyon, favorite sport, favorite uh, team slash sport slash athlete. Uh, you know, I read this question yesterday, and I thought to myself, how am I going to answer this? Uh, because I don't, nothing comes to mind. I don't, I don't know anything about sports. Um, I don't have a favorite team. I don't, I doubt I could name any athletes. Um, I just, you know, it's, I'm, my brain isn't wired that way. I, I used to like sports when I was a little kid, but as soon as I got to sort of the, the little league phase of life and found that I was, you know, very ungifted in, uh, all, all things athletic, uh, I quickly lost my luster for sports. And around that time I sort of got introduced to comic books and then it was just, you know, full steam ahead in that direction. Um, I, I guess if we're just going to go with what I, uh, know to be a correct answer, I would say favorite team is, uh, the Yankees because I live in New York and the favorite sport is baseball and the favorite athlete is Don Mattingly. Next and final question from Hanzo Hattori, the legendary sword maker. Any future adventures in six-inch scale? I love the Plan B Rex Ganon, and I'm eager to eventually get the Thousand Toys Knights of the Slice figures. Um, it depends on how you define adventures in six-inch scale. <laughs> uh, so I don't think we will be in the business of making our own figure line that's six inches tall. Uh, it is a, a much different beast to deal with. Uh, much more consideration takes double the time it takes us to do a three and three quarter inch figure. There's a ton of troubleshooting and troubleshooting that really I would need to be in China and Hong Kong to oversee because they are infinitely more complex than the figures we're making now. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a, a world we will ever step into in earnest. I, I see the most likely thing for that being some other company that already does six-inch figures, license the characters, and then, you know, adds that to their sort of line, which is the deal we had with Thousand Toys. Essentially, they were licensing the characters for their new synth line. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the contractual structure around that relationship. So I, I think if that's ever going to happen, it'll be a outbound licensing deal you know, similar to that. I, um, now, I said it depends on how you define adventures because without spoiling too much, I do have something adjacent to this, but it's more along the lines of an accessory kit, not a full figure. Uh, that should be rounding the bend sometime soon in the next couple months, and uh, I look forward to revealing that when uh, the time is right. Well, folks, I think that about does it for our questions. Just a nice short leisurely episode this week thank you for all the great queries thanks for turning out for the sales and watching the live streams uh it's gonna be a fun sale coming up this tuesday so stand by for that and other than that the only thing left to say is pizza out